This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Hey, thank you so much for taking time for this interview today. It is my pleasure. I'm Jonathan Master, host of Theology on the Go, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I also serve at Cairn University as Professor of Theology, Dean of the School of Divinity. You can subscribe to Theology on the Go on iTunes or visit us at placefortruth.org. Now, I can honestly say that I have not been as excited for an interview as I am today. My guest is Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, whom I have never met in person but from whom I have learned a great deal and have received significant encouragement. Her two books, which I cannot commend to you highly enough, although I know we recommend a lot of books on Theology on the Go, go out and get these if you haven't read them already, are The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which details the ways in which God brought her to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, and then, more recently, Openness Unhindered, which addresses really pressing questions of identity and repentance uh, particularly set against the backdrop of the confusion on these matters today. So, it's a privilege to welcome Dr. Rosaria Butterfield today. Thank you for joining me. I am so excited to join you as well, so thank you for inviting me. All right, now we try to keep these interviews short, but um, I, I wanted to, to know if at the beginning you could tell a little bit of your story. I know you devoted a whole book to your uh, the story of your conversion, how God brought you to himself. But I wonder if you could just, in a, in a brief thumbnail sketch, uh, sure. give us a little bit of your biography and conversion and, and kind of what brought you to be so interested in the issues upon which you write. Yeah, I'll try. Um, after, um, after I received, well, after, after it appeared that tenure was pretty much in the bag for me, um, I was a professor at Syracuse University, and my field was English literature and queer theory. And um, pretty much after my tenure book was written, I really wanted to write a book that that was on my heart to write, that would make a difference. And specifically, I wanted to, I, I just didn't understand, and I wanted to write about um, about the why the religious right was so hateful to people like me. And I specifically wanted to look at this from a lesbian feminist point of view. Um, I was uh, happily partnered in a lesbian relationship and had been in serially monogamous lesbian relationships for about a decade. And I uh, really just did not understand why Christians would not leave consenting adults alone. It, it just seemed to me that consent and, um, and all of the values that went with Rousseau's idea of, of, of liberty and autonomy and selfhood were just self-evidently true. And Christians were just peddling, a, you know, a kind of archaic um, um, notion that just couldn't stand the test of anything. So um, I realized that in order to write this book, I, because I'm an English professor, I actually needed to read the Bible to see why in the world this book got so many decent people 
um, following the wrong track. That was very much my opinion. And so um, as I started working on this project, the Promise Keepers uh, came to the university and I wrote what was supposed to be a little op-ed piece in the Syracuse Post Standard. Instead, they gave me a full page and it turned out to be, you know, kind of a thing and uh, received a lot of feedback. And, and one of the letters I received was from uh, an RPCNA pastor, Ken Smith, who was then the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. And it was simply the kindest letter of opposition I have ever received. Um, but what I loved about this letter was it showed me that Ken had exactly the pedigree I needed to be my unpaid research help because I really did want to know what Christians thought. And he was a thinking Christian. And so when Ken invited me to his home for dinner, I accepted because it seemed to me that it would be really good for my research. Well, it was really good for my life. Um, it was really bad for my research. And um, things un, uh, you know, un, unraveled kind of quickly for me um, in terms of my ability to hang on to my um, to my initial worldview assumptions, I, I with Ken's help read through the Bible um, about seven times before I ever even thought about stepping foot in a church in his church. Um, during that time, Ken was gracious and encouraging and answered my questions fully and left a lot of room for the Holy Spirit to work in my life and. And then, um, you know, at a certain point, what happened is just what happens. The Bible got to be bigger inside me um, than I am. And I came face to face with the reality that uh, while I had thought that I was on the side of diversity and compassion and kindness and open-mindedness, um, it was actually Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time. And that was a powerful undoing at about this time the psalm 73 really started to make sense to me i am like a beast before you um and so that was how it became evident to me that repentance was a threshold to a holy god regardless of how you feel now you know at the time that i was going through these things it wasn't that god zapped me i didn't stop feeling like a lesbian but what I did start doing was um, was feeling very much that my mind couldn't have enough of the Bible. I couldn't read enough of it, and I couldn't steep myself enough in it. And so that was really my undoing um, in many, many ways. And, you know, the Lord never gives you a command without giving you the grace to fulfill it. And so while this journey um, has been... Oh, I mean, it certainly had its challenges, no doubt. I have been very blessed to have union with Christ and the Lord's kind company, his saving um, faith, um, leaning on the promises of God and God's people, membership in Reformed churches. All of that has been um, has just given me a kind of meaning and a purpose and a grace to my life that I never really thought I could have. Some of those issues that you mentioned, um, Ken's initial uh, kindness to you and sort of the warmth of his hospitality and the community of which you eventually became a part are mm -hmm. also themes that you seem to return to. One of the things that sort of struck me in, in your most recent book, and, 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 I, and I wasn't quite sure what to make of it at first, is 
how the idea of, of community plays into your experience and, and both before your conversion, actually, and then and then after the Lord saved you. I wonder if you could talk a little bit right. a, a, about that, uh, that, that the importance of hospitality, the importance of community, again, both both in your previous life, I'll say, and then, and then as you've grown as a Christian. Right, 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 right. Well, the, um, the LGBT community is a community given to hospitality. And, and I just, you know, I believe in giving credit where credit is due. I honed the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife in my queer community. And, um, it was a community that was open literally every night, um, to everyone, um, not by invitation only, just a, open doors that would be a, the, something that would stand between you and alcohol, you and depression, you and suicide. Um, it, it was definitely a, uh, a community that considered itself a family. Uh, we, we called each other family of choice. And, um, and, it, and, and it, there's a great deal of, of common grace in um, at least certainly in the LGBT community from which I emigrated. Now, you know, we all know that the gospel comes in exchange for the life you once lived, not in addition to it. And so for me, emigrating from the LGBT community to become a citizen of this new thing called a Christian church was really filled with terror. Um, and my initial, my initial um, just kind of gut reaction was that, you know, these Christians live on a starvation diet of community. Um, and, you know, it, it, starving people don't know how to eat very well. They, they get sick when they eat. So, um, so that was, that was um, my first sense. And, and even, even though I was in a church that really recognized the fragility of my loss and, um, and welcomed me with open arms, um, but um, over the course of my life as a Christian, I have uh, been committed to um, creating a home and a church environment that is hospitable. Um, and, and that's because I remember what it's like to have the benediction, you know, still ringing in your ear and and these biological families are just kind of scattering in their very bounded systems. And it was really lonely. And, and I think people also don't realize that when you are a really, um, you know, almost a addicted kind of sexual sinner, the Lord's day is a very hard day. Um, any day that might be potentially filled with isolation is a hard day. So, um, by God's grace, um, I uh, had the great, amazing privilege to uh, to marry Kent Butterfield, who is a pastor in the RPCNA, and and you know he and I together share this vision for a hospitality that is palpably knowable beyond the walls of the church. We want our neighbors to know that this is how Christians live; that Christians live with the kind company of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, which gives us ample, ample arms um, length to draw people in. And so I, we tend to look at hospitality, Kent and I both, as coming um, out of two kind of theological prongs. One is the keeping of the Lord's day holy, and the other is the doctrine of adoption. And so in the last, the last chapter of Openness Unhindered, uh, I talk pretty extensively about what it would, what it means to have hospitality coming from your home, hospitality coming from your church, and hospitality that just you know em 
emigrates really through your neighborhood. I mean, your actual physical neighborhood. Um, and that, you know, in some ways, you know, there, it's, it's, it's a really, it's an important timely conversation because as Christians are, have become unwelcome, um, guests in this world. Now the question is, how do we extend the hospitality commands as an unwelcome guest, not necessarily as a host that has it all together? Those are all very important things. And, and again, the title of the book comes from the way that Paul himself, uh, in the book of Acts viewed hospitality. He was able to engage with his world, with openness, and he was completely unhindered, even when he was shackled, because of the power of the gospel. Yeah, I, I have to confess that was that wasn't a theological theme that I I expected to encounter when I when I read the book, but but I can see in in your writing, and then even now hearing you articulate it, how how integral a part that plays in in the whole. In the whole discussion, I, I, I did want to move though to a theological discussion in openness unhindered that I, I think I did expect and, and and benefited from tremendously, which was your discussion on uh, the, the the notion of sexual identity and hmm. and then on self representation and and you go back hmm. to Freud and then you talk about what does it actually mean to be gay. I wonder if you could talk about how you think biblically about these issues since since these terms are thrown around uh, quite a bit and, and even taken for granted in some circles, even ostensibly Christian circles. Right, right, right. And I think the terms we're talking about is the term gay Christian, um, right. even the term um, LGBT or even the, um, <clears throat> you know, the mom, you know, listening to this podcast right now whose daughter just came home from college and says, you know, I'm a lesbian. Um, what does it mean to use sexual orientation language and put that at the center of the gospel? Is it possible? Um, and so, and I'll tell you just again, because I come at these things pretty personally. It's not like I'm a, you know, I'm not a theologian. I'm an English professor by training. And anything I've learned, I've learned in the school of hard knocks. So um, when I first started reading the Bible, one of the things that really struck me was biblical ontology or what it means to have an, what's the essence of humanity. Now I was a postmodern professor. I believed that, um, that gender and sexuality were social constructs and that essentialism was a bad word. I believed that, um, binaries were dangerous. They created hierarchies of power and patriarchy and so, you know, I came up my reading of the Bible in a little different way than probably most people. I also was reading the Bible in big chunks. Um, nobody ever told me that you're supposed to read the Bible like a horoscope. So I wasn't reading it a verse at a time in whatever order, you know, my finger landed on. Mm. And it, a lot happens when you just sit down and read a book of the Bible. So you read, read, read Genesis, you realize it starts with a biblical ontology, you know, within the first couple of pages of the Bible. And that ontology was deeply offensive to me. It said very clearly in, in, in Genesis one twenty six that we are born male or female, that being born male or female is ontological, and uh, that it comes with moral responsibilities and constraints. We're also described there as image bearers of a holy God with a soul that will last forever. I was really offended by all of those things. But then it struck me that I had to ask the question, and this was the question, is my sexual desire for women 
um, a reflection of who I am, because that's what I believed. When I said I'm a lesbian, I was simply trying to be honest, tell, tell you where I am, where I stand on things. But the Bible's, that's not what the Bible says about me. The Bible declared quite clearly that indeed my sexual desire for women was a distortion of who I am through the fall. And so for about two years in, um, you know, in whatever way I, I could, I really pondered and troubled and read about and thought through that question. Now, I'm also a 19th century scholar, and I knew that the concept of sexual orientation was not a very old idea. It's a relatively new idea. In the 19th century, Freud um, introduced it. He introduced it in part because he believed that uh, Christian essentialism was a neurological, I'm sorry, a, um, uh, what is he calling it? He calls it an obsession. He called it a uh, pathological obsession. And, uh, and I agreed with him, you know, the first time I read through Freud. Um, but, but what happened with sexual orientation is that it was, an, it was clearly an idea that was meant to counter this idea that male or female is a binary that you can trust and that it comes with ethical and moral responsibilities. What sexual orientation said was in place of that idea of humanity, we have this new one, which is that what determines your humanity is your sexual orientation or, or um, fulfilling the, uh, the object of your desire. And even Michel Foucault, who was the um, French historian of ideas who died of AIDS in 1980, even, even Foucault said that this created a new species of humanity. He said that with Freud, the homosexual was born. So why is this important? It's important because prior to the 19th century, nobody used homosexuality as a noun. It never, it never described a person. It always described a practice. But as soon as it started to describe a person, it became a kind of idolatry that you were expected very much to live out your um, fl human flourishing based on your sexual orientation and being true and honest to it. So this idea, you know, has, has churned, you know, just kind of churned through the history of ideas. Um, and, and like most things, it has bumped into the, um, uh, you know, the ideology of the gospel. And now what happens? Well, um, at least in Christian circles, prior to about the um, 1990s, I would say, it was fairly standard to, for most Christians to understand homosexuality as a sin. And un unfortunately, I think that many Christians thought that therefore the answer to the problem of homosexuality was heterosexuality. You know, if, if, if only we could just take these people who have these distorted desires and make them heterosexual, then the problem will go away. And one of the things that does is it, it, um, it, it fails to understand the doctrine of sin in a really, uh, and I think in, in especially a way that a reformed Christian ought to understand it. The, the doctrine of sin teaches us that we are uh, distorted by original sin. We are uh, distracted by actual sin, and we are manipulated by indwelling sin every day. Um, and that's important to think about. We also know that while we are new creatures in Christ, we are not glorified until glory. And even though that we are being sanctified, um, still like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, we cry out and say, um, why do I do what I don't want to do? And so um, 
in light of that, there was a, certainly a, a crop of, of Christians who were uh, upset with being misunderstood. And, um, and so hence the, the concept of gay Christianity was born. Now, I, it's a really, it's a very um, theologically and ideologically um, implosive term. Um, you simply cannot modify Christian with uh, any adjective that is associated with a sinful desire. Um, and so in my book, I, I take up this question of um, uh, how, to, um, how to engage with people who call themselves gay Christians, how to engage the church on this subject. Now, there's no more you know, relevant time than right now, because what happened after the uh, 2015 a Bergefell decision, that's the, the Supreme Court decision that um, declared gay marriage legal in every state, what we've seen is that the idol of sexual orientation has moved now to a civil right. And so Christians really need to get on board with how dangerous it is to use concepts uh, like the concept of gay Christianity, to use um, to use a um, sexual orientation ideology and try to add that and stir that with the gospel. It just won't happen. Those are competing ideologies. Um, and furthermore, not only are they competing, but you won't, you either have union with Christ or you have your sexual identity. You cannot have both. But I mean, right now there's a, a you know, you could read it in the ETS journal. Uh, Wes Hill has his, um, you know, his signature essay on the importance of gay Christianity. And so it's, it's crucial that, that Christians really spend a little bit of time thinking through the, um, the etymology of these terms, the ideology of these terms, the theology of these terms, and the reality that this term has moved from an idol to a civil right. And what that means in terms of our religious liberty is, is, is pretty severe. Would you also object to any adjective modifying Christian? I mean, that even if it wasn't associated with a, with a sinful uh, desire, I mean, do you think that going down that road is problematic just, just in general? Not necessarily. I mean, I think sometimes it is meant to clarify. So, for example, if I am speaking to a broadly evangelical audience and I describe myself as a confessional Christian, I'm doing that in part to say I am going to be working with the Westminster Confession of Faith and I'm going to be doing that because saying the Bible alone is a, is a, it's a deceptive term and this is why. So I, I think that you can use placekeepers, but that placekeeper cannot be anything that God calls sin. And, you know, part of the debate is whether gay is a sin. I mean, a gay Christian will tell you that gay is a sanctifiable term. And so what, you know, again, we, we need to come very, you know, full on in terms of the doctrine of sin and say, well, wait a second. Sin isn't an enemy. Enemies can be reconciled. We love it when that happens. Sin is enmity. Enmity must be mortified. I'm called to mortify my sins, not um, domesticate them. And so, so uh, you know, again, I don't think that adjectives are 
you know, they're not allowed. But if you make your identity out of that adjective, I think that's a, that, that can certainly be um, what, what the Apostle Paul calls sectarianism. Um, but certainly any adjective that is something that God would call sin is, is, um, is a, um, it's one of those confusions that create big, big problems. Because when you change the language, you change the logic. So if you change the language of what it means to be a holy person, you're going to change the logic of the gospel. And then, not surprising, you're going to have um, your churches now fairly busting at the seams with either very lost sheep or wolves in sheep's clothing or both. I, I wish we could talk more, but I want to ask one final question here. And and, and that's this. I, you mentioned... Um, Perhaps the mom who who's having her daughter right. come home from college and and talk about being a lesbian and and no doubt I, I have no doubt that there are many listeners who are struggling with with sexual sin perhaps of a homosexual nature um, or who are counseling those who are and and so I wonder just just finally can you unpack a little bit how you speak about repentance to people in 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 the grip in some respects of these kinds of of sexual sins. You've alluded to that in, in various answers, but I wonder if you could sort of encapsulate it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I devote a whole chapter to repentance in my new book because it's so important. Repentance is the threshold to God. And, um, you know, Psalm 68 tells us that if we cherish sin in our hearts, God will not listen. So if we make an identity out of anything that God calls a sin, that's cherishing it. And, especially in uh, a Christian culture that has, you know, valued things like the sinner's prayer. Um, you know, we, we have, we've really lost our way in terms of what repentance is. Repentance is a gift from God. It can't be manufactured. Repentance is a fruit of your Christian life. Repentance gives glory to God. It's so important to know the difference between true repentance and counterfeit repentance, which is just rampant. But, you know, to the mom whose daughter just came home from college and says, I'm a lesbian, and this is just who I am. It's important that that mom in her heart, that she, you know, she doesn't she shouldn't, she probably ought not say this out loud, but she should say to herself, no, you're not. You're a child of God. You're a prayed for child. And you are struggling with a deep indwelling sin, but we're going to, I'm going to call it the right thing. I'm, I'm going to allow you to set this conversation because I see how fragile you are. And I, I'm certainly not trying to drive you away, but, but let's call things by their right name. Again, if you change the language, you change the logic. And we have changed the language of repentance. We live in a Christian culture that is happy to advertise sin, that is happy to admit sin, but confession and repentance are um, uh, they're, they're a bit of a lost art. And, and we do need to not only engage them ourselves in the deep ways that give honor to God, but also encourage one another to do so. Well, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And thank you also for your writing, your speaking, all the many things that, that you've done and are doing. Oh, well, thank you, Jonathan. It's just a, it's a pleasure to support what you are doing as well. And I, I thank the Lord for this podcast and for the, the Alliance and for all the good things that, that, uh, that we're trying to do together. Well, thanks. Thanks. 
You've been listening to Theology on the Go, a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's Church. Just for listening, we'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. And listen next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.